Living Time, The Integration of the Life by Dr. Morris Nickel. We are somewhere. We left off with the ratio of our senses sets time into movement, and it becomes passing time. Higher space becomes time. Such is the view that confronts us. That's where we left off. So you've had plenty to think about since the last time. Now you're going to have plenty more to think about because he does not let up. If we could halt at one moment of time, everything would remain exactly the same. Nothing would move. That makes sense. I think we've all imagined freezing time. Everything stops. Such moments are not unknown in conscious experience. Even our ordinary consciousness of time is not always of the same order. You know that sometimes time goes by so quickly, you want, where did the time go? And time sometimes goes so slowly, you think, is this never going to end? So yes, even in our ordinary consciousness of time, it's not always of the same order. There is an ancient description of the halting of time in which the present moment is expanded and felt as eternally existing. I hope he's not going to give us the one where, well, no, he's not, clearly, where the sun stood still for Joshua or Moses, I don't know who it was. Now I, Joseph, was walking, and I walked not. And I looked up in the air and saw the air in amazement. And I looked up unto the pole of the heaven and saw it standing still and the fowls of the heaven without motion. And I looked upon the earth and saw a dish set, and workmen lying by it, and their hands were in the dish, and they that were chewing chewed not, and they that were lifting the food lifted it not, and they that put it to their mouth put it not thereto. But the faces of all of them were looking upward, and behold, there were sheep being driven, and they went not forward but stood still. And the shepherd lifted his hand to smite them with his staff, and his hand remained up. And I looked upon the stream of the river, and saw the mouths of the kids upon the water, and they drank not. And of a sudden, all things moved onward in their course. That's from the Apocryphal New Testament. This is duration without time. Agreed? It's duration without time. One of our human moments does not lead into the next moment. Consciousness does not step across from one moment to the next, but halts in one fragment of enduring time. Our human moment is a particular measure of time. It might be different. All the history of the world might be one moment to some being. To God, Scripture says a thousand years are as one day. All that we see in passing succession might to another being be duration in which quite a different kind of change is going on from that which we see. You've got to know that time to a tree, like to a redwood, is different than it is to a mosquito or a fly. A house file is an average of seven days, I think. It's different. It's got to be different. Flies got to do everything in seven days. A redwood's got, what, 700 years. Some of those big sequoias have 700 years to get done what they're doing. And you know the difference between dogs and people. Dogs don't last as long. Animals don't last as long. And so there's got to be something in the universe that we don't last as long. And trees are one of the things. Imagine how many generations some of those sequoias have seen. How many ages. How many different peoples. All that we see in passing succession might to another being be duration in which quite a different kind of change is going on from that which we see. That's good enough. We can deal with that. We cannot see what the extension of everything in time is doing. A life, an age, may be changing, not in the sequence of present moments. I do not mean change of that kind, but as a whole. Eckhart says that if someone had the knowledge and the power to gather up the time and all the happenings of the last 6,000 years and all that is to come ere the world ends, all this summed up into one present now would be the fullness of time. All the history of one century might be a moment or a day for another kind of consciousness. 
Think what this means. We have to get entirely away from the idea of time as something connected with the clock. This is very difficult for us, because that's how we tell time. We inherit a definite measure of time which makes us see things as we see them. We see the world in a certain way due to our minimum of time. You see, we do have a minimum of time. You don't really have very long on this earth when you think about it, compared to the age of the earth, compared to our history. You don't have much time. If there were beings whose measure of time and perception did not coincide with our own, but were shorter or longer, it would follow that the world would be wholly otherwise presented to them than it is to us. They'd see it completely differently. As I said, a housefly that lives seven days must see the world entirely differently. And it's not just because of all those little things in his eyes, you know, like a bee sees. This question has been examined by E. von Baer, who has shown that the phenomenal world would undergo powerful transformation were our measure of time and perception altered. If it were altered in one direction, we would begin to see the world lines of Minkowski. That is, another form of the world would appear to us. We mark off a space of time according to the number of changes of nature comprised in it, Imagine the American Indians. Time was different for the American Indians. Time is different for farmers compared to people who work a nine-to-five. Time is different. They see it in seasons. They go by moon cycles, planting cycles. Not modern farmers, probably. They just do whatever they want to do because they're lords of the earth and they're destroying the whole thing in their lust to be lords of the earth. And rather than work with the harmony of nature, they've decided to just plow right through doing whatever they wanted to do, which is why you find it so difficult to get any nutrition out of the food you buy from them because it's junk, GMO junk. Their number for us, however, depends upon our subjective celerity of apprehension. That's to say, upon our congenital scale of time. You know what a congenital scale of time is, right? A congenital anything? Congenital is you're born with it. So we're born with this. We're stuck with this. It's our congenital scale of time. This is the one we're born into. This is the one we know about. It is our inheritance, as it were. Just like some people inherit brown eyes. That's congenital. If a thousand years became as one day to us, the surface of the earth might seem in continual wave-like motion, which, with our ordinary celerity of time, would be the experience of earthquakes divided by long intervals. So now we can't see that. But if a thousand years was like a day to us, then we'd see that. So it's a good thought. Ospensky emphasizes again and again in his writings on higher dimensions, particularly chapter 10 of A New Model of the Universe, that we do not see a simple uniform world. In some cases, we see the time lengths of objects. He says that our present moment includes the time lengths, lifetimes, of electrons, for which we see solid matter. We're not seeing the electrons. We're seeing solid matter. The minute particles that constitute matter reach our consciousness only through their time dimensions. The fourth, the fifth, and the sixth, in other words, they reach it only by virtue of their motion and the repetition of their motion. We see the lives of electrons continually repeated. An electron is not in our three-dimensional world. Where are they? Well, he says they're in the fourth, fifth, and sixth dimensions. We see the lives of electrons continually repeated. Duprell says that if the process of nature were quickened with a corresponding change in our measure of time, we should be unaware of the fact and would be unable to believe that our lives were either longer or shorter than they are now. But the quickness of nature and our congenital measure of time must really be one and the same thing. I mean that it is our measure of time that makes nature appear as she does to us. What she is to herself is another matter. 
processes that take centuries in our experience may be merely moments in her life. Think of the experience of the Earth, however many millions of years old it is. And it's really relatively young. Our sun is relatively young. When you think about it, it's kind of mind-boggling. Plato spoke of the reversal of time. The reversibility of the temporal order has often been considered. One mathematician has suggested that the movement from past to present as we know it has some connection with the quantity of the past in relation to the quantity of the future. If the value of these quantities were different, we might know an entirely different movement of time. What would this signify? Yes, you better tell us what it would signify because I am completely lost with that one. It's interesting to consider what it would mean. Plato connected the Golden Age with the backward movement of passing time. If time went backward, our entire lives would be different in the meaning of events. For example, no one could kill another person. What for us is the carnage of war would be the raising of the dead, because time would be going backwards. We would live in a world in which physical violence would be impossible. Bullets would spring out of the bodies of the dead and travel accurately into the barrels of distant rifles. Another science would explain it as action at a distance, some kind of magnetic effect, whereas it would be a world line traversed in a new way. This guy really gets out there, doesn't he? <laughs> it's like H.G. Wells, move over. Men would be born out of earth, fire and water, the drowned, the burned, the buried. So that's where they would be born. And of course, they would go backwards. They would get from older to younger. And that would be normal and everyone would go, well, that's how it is. Quite another causality would exist. The sea would give up its dead. Everything would be related in a temporal order of cause and effect. All the material of our lives as we know them, with all the chains of cause and effect that we connect with them and invent, would be transformed into an entirely new story. You can imagine being born like Warren Buffett and then going backwards until you get to the grave, which is for us birth, but you would be broke. I had a friend. He thought that the way it should work is everybody should be born with a million dollars, and then you have to get rid of it by the time you die. It was an interesting concept. He was one of those weird thinkers, too. So everything would be related in a new temporal order of cause and effect. You can see how that would everything would be backward. It would be like that vision seen by Ezekiel of the Valley of Bones. There was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone and sinews and flesh came upon them, and they lived and stood upon their feet. Suppose a man died in the desert and passes into dust. Reverse time, and what must inevitably happen? Every particle of him must come together, even though his dust had been spread over the entire world. Pour a glass of water on the carpet. There's no process whereby it can be recovered. Reverse passing time, and every particle of water will arise from the floor and enter the glass. Nothing could be lost. If we understand that time is, we will realize that nothing can be lost. It is this thought of the existence of time itself, of its reality, of the fact that there is no time that can begin to change the feeling of oneself in relationship to one's life. As long as we believe that only the present moment of our life is actual and all else non-existent were lost forever, we're bound to have one particular kind of feeling of oneself. We can have no sense of the indestructible and living life. Let's look at a form of analogy that has been used by many writers in descriptions of higher dimensions. Conceive a two-dimensional world, a world limited to a surface. For such a world, our world of three dimensions would be higher space. Can you understand this? So you have this world, and this is the whole world. It's just two dimensions. 
Now you add a third dimension, and it's higher space. Yes? You can see that? Okay. The looks on your faces sometimes when I read some of this, is you just have this blank look. Well, not a, quite a zombie look, but this blank look like, what? And I guess it, it, it takes a little while to wrap your mind around this, but it's clear. If you have this flat two-dimensional space and you add the third dimension, it has to be a higher space. It's not just linear. It has something higher. So now what he's saying is you'd add something higher to this, the fourth dimension, and that's higher. And the fifth dimension is higher. And the sixth dimension is higher. Ad nauseum. Who knows how high it goes? We don't know. We know that there are at least seven. But beyond that, I don't know if anyone knows. Probably someone knows, but it's not me. A sheet of paper can represent it. A sheet of paper has length and breadth and, relatively, very little thickness, so that its extension in the third dimension is very small, based on its relative thickness. If a pencil is pushed vertically through the sheet, only a very thin slice or cross-section will actually lie in the thickness of the paper. Take this pencil and you stick it through a piece of paper... Just that sliver of the pencil. Well, that sliver of the pencil is all that a two-dimensional being could know. It could not know anything on either side of it. You get the idea now of where we're at? We may as well be two-dimensional beings when it comes to time. Because all we're seeing is this sliver, this moment right now. But what is on either side of it, for us, doesn't exist. Just like the pencil stuck through a piece of paper, either side of it wouldn't exist for anything living on that piece of paper, anything limited by those two dimensions. We're limited by three dimensions, so pretty much we're stuck in the same position as if we were a piece of paper with a pencil stuck through it, the pencil being time. I think that's a great example. Imagine beings living in the sheet of paper, cognizant of nothing else but their paper world and what lies in it. They would know only the cross-section of the pencil. Why, oh, I just said all this. For this would be all the pencil that would lie in their world. All else would be invisible. They would not know anything about the rest of the pencil because we are assuming that their relationship to the third dimension is limited only to the thickness of the paper. In a somewhat similar way, we can think of our relationship to the fourth dimension as one that is limited to the thickness of the fourth dimension we experience naturally. That is, to what for us human beings is the measure of time called present moment. I said all that. He says it in a different way. I don't know. I think it is probably a little more difficult the way he says it. The thickness of the paper is the measure of the third dimension for the paper being, and only what lies within it. All cross-sections of any three-dimensional objects penetrating their world can form part of their present momented visible world. The rest would be invisible, non-existent, not in their world, though in our world, not in their present moment, though certainly in our present moment. So you could see then that someone living in the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension would see things entirely differently than the way we see things. So the pencil itself, as an integrated whole, would exist in the invisible world for them. So it would exist in the invisible world, just like the past and the future both exist if you could see them. But with our limitations, we obviously can't. Only a cross-section which has no resemblance of an actual pencil could exist in their visible world, and all the rest of it would be in their past or future. If the pencil is slowly passing through their paper world, successive cross-sections of it appear to them. What has already appeared will pass out of their world, be no longer visible, and seem to them to be in the past, in the already experienced. The part of the pencil that has not yet passed into their visible world will be in their future in the not-yet-experienced. To us, with our higher-dimensional vision, all the parts of the pencil coexist simultaneously. 
its beginning and its end, and it exists as a whole, a unity, having a form and function absolutely inconceivable to paper beings. Suppose we could descend into their paper world and assume the conditions of their existence, learn their two-dimensional views and habits of thought, and explain to them that their world is only a limited expression of an infinitely larger and different world. This sounds really dangerous. Anybody who's ever done this has gotten killed. And I'm not talking about going into the paper world. I'm talking about people who come into our world from other dimensions and try and explain to us what it's like. They usually end up killed. The prophets ended up killed. Jesus ended up killed. Most everybody ends up killed because we are incapable of getting it, apparently. What would they say? What do you suppose they'd say? With their natural minds, they would never believe that the cross-section of the pencil was part of a much greater and more interesting reality, a pencil. It would seem merely great nonsense to them. They would not believe in the reality of our world in comparison to which the reality of their world would be relative. Now, the reader will see that our world would be outside their time and space, yet everything visible in their world would originate from another world invisible to them, namely our world. At every point, their views, based on their senses and on their visible world, would collide with our more dimensional knowledge, and since the feeling of being right is at the bottom of most violence, we would probably find ourselves in danger if we tried to alter their point of view, which would be right for them, but only relatively right for us. So there you have it. Like I said, anybody who comes into this dimension trying to explain this to us usually ends up dead. Their truth would not be commensurable with our truth. Their truth would not be the same. So it's like Jesus' truth is not the same as our truth. Huh? What do you mean you raised the dead? What do you mean you healed the lepers? What do you mean that's impossible? You can't do that. And we're all so certain of it, just like the paper people would be certain that there's no such thing as a pencil. There's just this little sliver. Well, that's what you're calling a pencil? That pole? That object? That useless object, because that's all it would be, is a useless object. At every point, their view, based on their senses and on their visible world, would collide. If we are justified in making this analogy, then for us, living in a three-dimensional world, our perception of things may be nothing but a relatively real one. Clearly, it is relatively real, relative to our own experience. The present moment may only show us something comparable to a cross-section, or what I would prefer to call a certain minimum of a vastly greater containing world extended in dimensions hidden to our senses and existing in these directions which are unknown and inaccessible to us. For if we touch the fourth dimension, limiting ourselves only to this dimension of higher space, in some such way as the paper beings touch the third dimension, we must widen our conception of the world and feel that we do not really know our world. The senses show us a section or a minimum, but can we not suppose that mind potentially opens on what is beyond this minimum? The paper beings could only grasp the nature of our world by mind, above the mind of sense. What we see directly and without effort would be for them a matter of difficult mental grasping, not through logical reason, but by means of ideas which they did not naturally possess. So someone would have to go and tell them about this other dimension, this third dimension, and he would have to share with them ideas, and then they could only think about this with new ideas. Otherwise, it would never occur to them. Actually, our sense would be their mind. We would see what they would have to understand. Idea for them would be fact for us. It's like if you're telling a child something about math or music. What's an idea for the child as you're trying to explain it to him is a fact for you, but for the child it's just an idea. From this point of view, it's quite possible to think that what illuminates us suddenly as idea is a perception of an order of life above us, an order of higher facts.
Now, if the pencil passed right out of the paper world, it would no longer exist to the paper beings. They would speak of it as having passed into non-existence. They would say, it was once upon a time. It would be in their yesterday, to which, of course, they would not give any real quality of existence, just as we don't. But we would say, well, the pencil is. They would say, it doesn't exist anymore. But we will say, it, it is, because we could still see it. It would still be here for us. For we would see it in another place, in what would be higher space for them. So after it went through the paper, we'd still see it. But for them, anything on either side of that thin sheet of paper is higher space, whether it's above or below. Put it sideways, and then it's this way. But it's still higher space, no matter how you cut it. One point of the analogy is to show us that what relative reality means. All that was real in their world of paper would be the higher realities of our world passing through it, immensely distorted. What would be real to them is this pencil. And they would just see it passing through it. But for us, this is a higher reality because it still exists and we can pick it up and write with it and we know what it's for and we can do things with it and they can't. With their convincing visible environment, they would regard such a view as highly improbable. A cross-section of the pencil in their world would appear to subsist convincingly out of itself and to be explicable in terms of itself, to be quite real as it appeared. If they sought to get to the root of the matter, they would study its minuter component parts or atoms, and then they would feel they had exhausted the reality of the object. Just like our scientists, trying to find out how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Scientists and theologians, I suppose. They would never seek a further explanation in an extension of that dimension, which for them would be passing time and present moment, out of which all movement, objects, and events swarm into the range of their two-dimensional life. If the sharpened point of the pencil first entered their world and passed in, they would see a circle of lead slowly surrounding itself with a wooden coat. It would look like growth arising from the point of lead. Growth in our world may be similar. If we tried to convey another kind of knowledge to them, it could probably only be done by means of allegories, parables, and symbols. Are you starting to see where he's going with this? It's a little scary. We're going to do one more section because we do have some time. Do you want to or have you had enough? You haven't had enough? Wow, you guys are getting tough. I said earlier that all function in man is four-dimensional. Any intelligible process has aim or purpose, cause and effect contained in it, but the three can only constitute one whole in four dimensions. So what three? Aim, purpose, cause and effect. Cause and effect is one. Aim, purpose, cause and effect. Any process such as breathing, digestion, etc. is in time as well as in space. Breathing is a cycle of inspiring and expiring, no part of which can be left out, otherwise it would be useless. See, now he's getting practical. This is where we live. So allegories, parables, examples where we live is good for us. That's why you want to go on. The process then exists as a whole if we think of it as four-dimensional and can only be understood as whole, as complete cycles, that with a certain end in view proceed by a linkage of cause and effect in time order. You take a breath, you exhale, you see that as that whole thing as one breath. But it is process, and process itself cannot be seen by the microscope, save in cross-section. It has often been said that man is composed of levers, not of wheels. Seen three-dimensionally in the present moment of time, he is composed of levers. His bones are levers operated by muscles. There is no sign of any visible wheel in him. But four-dimensionally, is he not full of wheels? Like the breath? Isn't that a wheel? Circulation of the blood? Isn't that a wheel? 
But four-dimensionally, is he not full of wheels, and is not his life itself full of returning cycles? Yes. The modern functional point of view, whether in physiology, biology, or psychology, is unconsciously four-dimensional, just as physics is avowedly so. The world, the latter regards, is not the three-dimensional world in which the separation between objects is evident, but another world where relations can exist that are not seen in our sensory world. For the addition of a dimension necessarily gives entirely new relations. You add a dimension, everything's got to be different. You add third dimension to the paper people, and if they could see it, everything would be different for them, wouldn't it? What appears to be separated and unrelated in a space of fewer dimensions may be connected or related in a space of higher dimensions, like the paper and the pencil. For example, we know that the sides of a right-angle triangle are not related directly, but that the squares on these sides have a relationship. Or consider a crude analogy. The prongs of a fork entering the two-dimensional world of paper beings would seem to them entirely unrelated and separate as four points. They would see them, in their space, as having no connection with one another. This is good. We see people in our space as separate, but man is not in space, but in humanity. But we see this humanity abstractly or sentimentally, not understanding that it may have continuity in higher dimensions. It may be like the fork. We're seeing these four people here, and actually they're connected in humanity, which is in another dimension, and exist as a whole, of which each of us is a cross-section worth a certain minimum. All this means that according to the number of dimensions, reality must alter. Discrepant views such as the wave theory of light and the corpuscular theory have their origin in this. See a new model of the universe, chapter 10. The language of continuous waves and the language of separate light quanta are entirely different, yet each is applicable in certain cases. So there you have it. We're going to stop there because he just boggled my mind with those last two sentences. And this is a good place to stop. So what do you think? It's good, huh? I think what makes it good is the examples because we've got to somehow have analogies, parables, symbols. We've got to have something to help us get these ideas that come from higher. They come from something higher. The best we can do is call it something higher. If you call it anything else, people get crazy. Call it God, people get crazy. But you call it higher levels, then people are okay with that. Because what? Almost everybody's mother went to a tent meeting when they were pregnant with somebody, and the preacher scared them, and now they're all afraid of God. They're all afraid. Everybody's so afraid. Like, somebody's going to make me do something I don't want to do. Just in case you hadn't noticed, life is making you do what you don't want to do every single day. You want to go to work and do what you're doing? You want all that? No, you don't. You do it for money. You do it because you're forced. You do it for food. You do it for clothes. You do it for a house. You do it for a car. You do it because you have to do it, not because you want to do it. So like he says, this is yourself. This is how you see yourself. This is what yourself is to you. But change that, and how you see yourself must necessarily change too. Just start to put these things together. Think about them. Don't hurt yourself. Just think about them. And when you find yourself mentally stuttering, just stop and go do something else. That's what I do. And then I come back to it when I'm refreshed. Truth is everything.